You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with John Hagel who is the author of many, many books and also a leading strategy thinker who has worked at McKinsey, has had a bunch of startups, worked most recently at Deloitte, where he founded and is now, I guess, emeritus chair of Center for the Edge. In addition to your very generous blog posts, (laughs) you're the author of a bunch of books. The Power of Pull is one that I really enjoyed about a decade ago, which I unfortunately could not find in my boxes of books, but I was able to Go back and find The Only Sustainable Edge, which you also co-authored with John Seeley Brown, and the most recent book called The Journey Beyond Fear, Leverage the Three Pillars of Positivity to Build Your Success. Well, John, we're going to have to talk about all of your work, but this most recent book, I think it's probably your most personal book, and it represents a bit of a departure, not, not a complete discontinuity, but a bit of a departure where I think you say that you came to some realization that psychology is at least as important as strategy. Now, of course, you actually formulate it slightly differently, I think, in your blog post where you say that the focus of of strategy has moved from structure to movement to emotion, okay? And so it's not that psychology is more important than strategy, but psychology and emotion is an essential component of strategy, Tell me about the evolution of this insight and how you made this shift. Is this just sort of the kind of shift that all of us make when we become older and wiser and start to (laughs) understand the world more based on our experience and less on the models that we've incorporated over the years? Well, I'm hopeful that we can come to this insight much earlier in our lives. I don't want to say it's necessarily later in the life, but I think that my experience Most of my career has been in business strategy, working with large companies, working with senior executives around framing and implementing strategy. And I came to realize that many of the strategies were not being implemented and that the real resistance to them was emotions, fear. And so I became more and more focused on if we don't understand the emotions of the people who are involved within the company, but then also outside the company, we're never going to achieve the impact that we want to achieve. And we can develop all the wonderful strategies we want and we'll just sit on a shelf somewhere because we haven't really understood the emotions that are driving people. Well, when you talk about emotions, I mean, you spend a lot of time talking about fear and how fear can be an obstacle to so many things, right? Not just sort of the implementation of a strategy, but, you know, it gets in the way of any kind of progress and and learning. I've spoken to some other folks on this podcast where we've tried to speculate about whether fear or these threat narratives are on the rise or have human beings always existed in this kind of state of fear. But I think you point to the big shift as something which is perhaps exacerbating this state of of fear. So maybe we can step back and talk about this big shift. How did you begin to formulate this idea? What exactly is this big shift? Is this something unprecedented or is this just the latest of many shifts that we've experienced over the last couple centuries? Yeah, let me start with what I mean by the big shift. I think that it's the result of decades of research. I've been focused on trying to understand 
the long-term forces that are shaping our global economy and society. And I've come to believe that we are in the early stages of a big shift, even though it's been going on for decades, I think it's still the early stages, <laughs> a lot more to come. And in the context of the emotions, one of the key elements of this big shift is what I describe as mounting performance pressure on all of us as individuals and as institutions. So the pressure takes many different forms. Some of it is intensifying competition on a global scale. Competition's intensifying, not just for companies, but for individuals. I mean, more and more people I talk to are worried that their jobs are going to be taken by the robots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're competing with the technology or they're competing with people from lower income countries who could do their job. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of intensifying competition. The second element is accelerating pace of change. Things we thought we could count on are no longer there. That's pretty scary. And then because of all the connectivity we've created around the world, a small event in a faraway place in the world quickly cascades into an extreme disruptive event that leaves us scrambling to figure out what to do. There I mentioned pandemic. I think mm -hmm. that's one example of the kind of extreme disruptive events, but the combination of all of those intensifying competition, accelerating change, extreme disruptive events. Yeah. A natural human reaction to that is fear. And I think it's understandable at one level, there are reasons for fear, but on the other side, I come to believe fear is a very limiting emotion and is going to prevent us from achieving as much of our potential as we could. So I'm focused on how do we, first of all, recognize the fear, acknowledge the fear, which is a challenge in itself, but then move to overcome the fear and cultivate emotions that will help us to, to have more impact. And to your question of whether this is unique or different, unfortunately, I'm terrible with names. I'm going to blank. There's a great book that was written by a professor at Cambridge on technology disruptions throughout past several centuries, 500 years, everything from the steam engine to electricity. And one of the things that she saw was that when you have a technology disruption, it comes in fast and big, but then it levels off. There's some incremental improvement, but it levels off. And then there's another burst of innovation around the infrastructures to deliver that technology. So with electricity, it was the discovery that centralized facilities were going to be more efficient at delivering electricity, producing and delivering electricity than producing electricity in every facility. But that was true of all the technologies until we got to digital technology. There is no leveling off. There is no stabilization. It's continuing to improve at exponential rates. And so I think that's a key driver of the accelerating pace of change that's really causing this to be quite different from the disruptions we've seen in the past. Yeah, I think in, somewhere in your writing, you, you talk about how economists are used to thinking in terms of equilibria, right? And so when there's a shock, you're basically going from one equilibrium to another. And so the pain is really all about that adjustment process. But the big shift that you're talking about, it seems like we're going from these periodic equilibria to a world where the, there is no equilibrium, right? We're just in this <laughs> constant change and there's no time to kind of R&R. &R. There's no time to kind of just kick back and, and say, okay, I figured this out. Now I'm going to kind of amortize my learning, amortize my new skill set and kind of live off it for a while. But rather the minute you think you've 
settled in, that's when something else happens. I think so it's really it's sort of a discontinuity around the pace of change. Yeah, it's not only continuous, but I I believe it's actually accelerating. I think we're seeing more and more change over time as these things ripple out and more change comes in to upset what we thought was a, a new equilibrium for sure. Now maybe we can go back and and talk a bit about the history of of strategy or the recent history. I mean, you you went to Harvard, you got a JD MBA, right? Actually, I think you're probably one of the earliest to do that. I had to kind of do a little bit of law and a little bit of business and took me like two decades or so, but you, you managed to cram it all in there and then you headed off into a career in strategy. And we'll talk about maybe a little bit about your personal narrative and why you decided to make that move. But at the time, you know, you talked about how the world was starting to enter into a phase where the return on assets was declining dramatically. And this was due to heightened competition. And you refer to it sometimes as margin compression. This led to everybody having to rethink what they meant by strategy. So walk us through how were people thinking about strategy when you first entered into your career in strategy? And then were the responses to this margin compression sort of incomplete attempts to understand it, incomplete attempts to remedy it? What were some of the false starts that were made in attempts to understand and, and respond to these changes? Yeah, let me just start with the ROA trend because I think that's an important research around the big shift. What I did was I looked at all public companies in the United States, not a sample, but every single one from 1965, a few years before digital technology really came into the business world until today, well, to 2019. And over that time period of five decades, the ROA for all public companies in the U.S. has gone down by over 75%. It's been a long sustained erosion. There's no sign of it leveling off, much less turning around. So I think if there's an indicator of mounting performance pressure and our increasing inability to respond to that pressure, that's a pretty good indicator. And I picked ROA, by the way, in part because I think many public companies have found ways to insulate the investors from some of this pressure through financial engineering. They add more debt to the balance sheet. They give higher dividend payouts. They buy back stocks. There are lots of ways you can kind of help the investors to at least protect some of their investment. But ROA, I think, really focuses on the fundamentals of the business before you do financial engineering. And 75% reduction, again, I think is a pretty good indicator of something's wrong here. And to your point about strategy, I think there has been a, an evolution in strategy when, when I started in strategy back in the God knows seventies strategy was all about structure, understanding the structure of the industry, you know, who's playing and what roles of where you can play from a structural viewpoint over time. I think there's been an evolution away from that to what I describe as strategy as movement, which is that the key to a successful strategy is just being able to sense and respond as quickly as possible to whatever's going on. And that's the key to success. There's a lot of oversimplifying, I'm sure, but this whole movement around agile, for example, is I think a representative of that approach. In part, I think that's actually a sign of fear. One of the responses of fear, that fear engenders is to shrink your time horizons mm -hmm. and just focus on the moment, reacting to whatever's happening. But I think one of the challenges I see in that approach, and one of the biggest complaints I hear from senior executives 
is that we're spread way too thin. We have so many initiatives going on and nothing's got critical mass of resource or attention. Nothing's yielding the, the results we had hoped for. And I think that's in part a result of this reactive approach. If you're just going to react to whatever's going on at the moment, good luck. There's so much going on. You're never going to be able to respond to all of it. And so I think that there's a flaw in that approach. And the other element that I think is a key driver of this diminishing performance is I believe all our institutions today are driven by a model of what I call scalable efficiency, mm -hmm. that the key to success is to become more and more efficient at scale, do things faster and cheaper. That's the key to success. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I started my career at Boston Consulting Group, BCG, one of the things that made BCG famous in the early days was something called the experience curve which showed that over time in industry after industry, performance levels off because you have diminishing returns. And the issue is you have diminishing returns because we're focused on scalable efficiency. The more efficient you become, the longer and harder you have to work to get that next increment of performance improvement. So I don't think scalable efficiency is the answer. And in fact, again, the ROA numbers demonstrate that it's got diminishing returns. So a lot of the things that then people think of as strategy isn't really strategy at all, right? I mean, if you're just sort of like, hey, be prepared for everything, you know, or just buy up a whole bunch of options and, and hope that you have the right ones in pocket when things change, you would say that's not really a coherent strategy. You use this term kind of zoom in and zoom out. And I remember, I love this term because I ran into an MBA student of mine, who graduated like a decade ago. And and I said, hey, do you remember anything from school? Like, what'd you learn? He's like, well, I don't remember a whole lot, but I do remember that I need to zoom in and zoom out. <laughs> and I thought, there we go. That was $150,000 insight right there. So definitely learned, learned something. But, you know, your, your personal narrative is an interesting one. In the book, you said that when uh, you were a child in third grade, you took a test. And I remember I took the same test. And in your test, it said that you were going to be a priest <laughs> or a social worker. <laughs> I remember I got something very different. I think they said I was going to be an insurance actuary. And I've spent my entire life kind of fighting that. Yeah. Although I think I probably would have been quite good. You seem to have spent your life actually living up to this prophecy without really even realizing it until fairly late in life. How is it that the life of, of a consultant is one that allows you to help others, help others figure things out? How does being a consultant fit in not only with your vision of yourself and your personal narrative, but also kind of that prophecy that you got in third grade? At the time that I took that test in third grade, I thought that's absurd. I'm not that religious. I'm not really focused on social issues. This is not me. But over time, I came to realize that actually consultants at the time that I was in third grade, consulting wasn't really a profession. Mm -hmm. So it was either social work or, or a priest, but the consultants were very much like social workers and priests mm -hmm. in the sense of focused on helping others address problems and issues that they're wrestling with. And in terms of my own personal journey, I came from a childhood that was pretty dysfunctional. My mother had very significant anger issues. And I experienced a lot of emotional abuse. My father kind of retreated. I, well, he wasn't there to protect me. And so I grew up in fear and I grew up believing that my needs did not matter, that it was all about serving the needs of others, that that was the key for me to 
justify my existence. So I, I lived that message for a good part of my early life, which was this notion of what are your problems and issues? How can I help you? And by the way, help you with just my mind and analysis, not emotions, because I had come to believe emotions were pretty dangerous. The emotions I was exposed to were anger and fear, and I didn't want to have anything to do with those emotions. So let's just stick with the numbers and the analysis and we'll figure it out and address your problems. And that's what led me into consulting as, as a profession. And that third grade test proved to be much more predictive than I believed at the time. Mm -hmm. I want to dig into this, this idea of the emotions. I want to circle back to your, your narrative as well, but I was speaking recently with a guy from uh, Guatemala. And he said that one of the reasons why he enjoyed living in the United States is that back in Guatemala, if you were started life as a butcher, you were going to spend your whole life as a butcher. And if you started your life as a farmer, you're going to spend your whole life as a farmer. And he liked it here because he could be a construction worker and then be a tow truck driver and then be a mechanic. And he could just continually kind of reinvent himself. And so the stability that you would have back in, in Guatemala is maybe one that is devoid of opportunity, but it may be devoid of this fear, right? This need to constantly reinvent oneself. And so what are the damaging effects of, of this fear? And is this fear, why isn't this fear justified? If, as you say, there are a million people that could do your job or a million robots that could do your job, right? Why shouldn't you be afraid? No, no, I am not in any way dismissing the fear. I think the fear is very understandable and I don't believe we're ever going to eliminate the fear. So there is pressure. And if we see the pressure, we're going to be afraid. But on the other hand, I think fear has very negative kinds of impacts on our lives in the sense of one impact of fear is it shrinks our time horizon. If we're really afraid, all we can do is focus on the moment. We can't spend time looking ahead. That's a distraction. If we just shrink our time horizons, we end up in a win-lose view of the world. If it's just about today, the resources are given. The only question is who's going to get them, me or you, win-lose. There's no win-win here. And it leads to erosion of trust mm -hmm. because you may seem like a nice person. At the end of the day, I know only one of us is going to get these resources, so I can't afford to trust you. Right. And you become more risk averse. You don't want to take risk. You want to hold on to what you have and what you've done and not take any risk. And so all of that, I think, leads to a very vicious cycle of more and more fear and more and more adverse situations. I don't view that as a healthy way to deal with the world. The way I understood your point was that, look, there are these threats out there, but your ability to respond to the threats is sort of a function of how you interpret them. That a threat and an opportunity are really two sides of the same situation. And that ultimately, if you're going to convert the threat into an opportunity, it requires that you change the narrative in some way. So I think the first building block of the journey beyond fear is this idea of, of a narrative. And I think kind of your point is that whether we realize it or not, we are adhering to some narrative, even if it wasn't one that was articulated. So how is it that institutions and, and companies, how is it that they can kind of help us to build out more productive narratives? Or is it really up to us? Is it really sort of a self-help thing? I think you mentioned in the book that there's this whole personal movement where people are learning how to deal with emotions and manage emotions. But I teach a course on HR and, and part of the point of the class is that 
you don't want to just simply leave it up to the employees, right? As a company, you have an opportunity to craft a narrative for your, your institution and also for the people who are part of it. So what is the role of, first of all, narratives? And I know you've written a couple hundred pages on this, but what is the role of narratives and how do we build these narratives? Are they built for us or do we build them ourselves? Oh, boy, I think there were about 10 questions in that <laughs> <Right>. question. <laughs> oh, we got to get through the whole book, right? I know, I know. No, so I, I definitely believe narratives are absolutely essential in this journey beyond fear. The issue, and it's as true of all the pillars that I explore in the book, is that I have a very different meaning attached to them than what most people mean. So narratives, most people view narratives the same thing as stories. Story and a narrative, same thing. I make a big distinction between the two. For me, a story is self-contained. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. The end, it's over. And the story is about the storyteller or about some other people, real or imagined. It's not about you. You can use your imagination, figure out what you would have done in that story, but it's not about you. In contrast, for me, a narrative is open-ended. It's Looking into the future, there is some kind of major threat or opportunity not yet achieved, and it's not clear how this is going to resolve. The resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to the people you're speaking to, to say your choices, your actions are going to help determine how this narrative plays out. What's it going to be? I think it creates a sense of agency. Now to complicate life. I talk about narrative at many different levels. I think each of us as individuals live our lives to a narrative, but most of us have not even taken the trouble to express it, much less reflect on it. So there's personal narrative. I believe there are corporate narratives, institutional narratives. I believe there are geographic narratives, and I believe there are movement narratives. So narratives can play out at many different levels. And to one of your points, one of the key things in the book that I'm trying to address is I believe for decades, we've had a set of initiatives that fall under the umbrella of human potential or human growth that focus on helping individuals to address the challenges and obstacles they're facing and get more impact. On the other side, there's been a whole set of initiatives around the umbrella of social change. It's how do we change the environment? to become more prosperous and thriving. And the interesting thing is for decades, these two sets of initiatives have proceeded in parallel and there's been virtually no intersection. It's either all about the individual or all about the environment. My view is until and unless we bring these two together and to your point, recognize that yes, at one level, we as individuals have to be motivated to achieve more potential. But if we're in environments that are crushing us and limiting our ability to achieve potential, good luck. We need environments that are going to support this and help us versus environments that are going to crush us. And so I think absolutely to your point as well, I believe that companies and all institutions have the need and the opportunity to really craft narratives that will inspire people and help motivate them to reflect on their own narratives and figure out what is it that's inspiring or driving me today. I will say too, again, it gets complicated in the psychology profession, there's a, a wide school around personal narratives. 
But when you talk to psychologists about personal narratives, what they mean is what's the story of your life? Mm -hmm. Look back and how did you get to where you are today? And it stops with today. My view of personal narratives is it's about the future, not about the past. When you look ahead, what is really the biggest motivator for you? Is it a threat or an opportunity? And if it's one or the other, what kind of threat or what kind of opportunity? And then step back and reflect, is this really what's going to motivate me to accomplish as much as I could? And so it's looking ahead and articulating, expressing that narrative. And I think most of us increasingly around the world have adopted a threat-based personal narrative where the future is about some kind of big threat. And so a threat-based narrative, if you let that impact you too much, then you're basically just making decisions, followed by decisions, escaping this threat, then escaping this threat, and then you die, right? So I actually had a, a colleague who, who worked at McKinsey. He was very successful, but he said it wasn't until his 30s that he woke up and asked himself, what the heck was he doing? I mean, he, he went to school and because his parents expected him to, and he got the grades because everyone around him was getting them, and then he went to consulting because that was the thing that you did. And then every step along the way was just some milestone that he felt he had to achieve. You mentioned that you were 54 years old when you first articulated the narrative of your life. That's my age right now. So I'm interested in this, right? <laughs> I'm trying to figure, wait, have I done that yet? Like, tell me about that experience. I'm sure you didn't, you were not living the way my colleague was. Was it more of your articulating the narrative, discovering the narrative or creating the narrative at that point in your life? Well, all of the above, I think it was really evolving my narrative. I think throughout most of my life, again, I was driven by a narrative of I'm here to help you solve problems with analysis and data versus anything else. And it drove me into consulting and I did a lot of things based on that narrative. At the same time, I mean, it's complicated. Nothing in life is very simple. At the same time, one thing is I was drawn to Silicon Valley 41 years ago now. And when I reflect on what drew me here, what attracted me to Silicon Valley, one thing which was really central was what I would describe as an opportunity-based narrative in Silicon Valley. The people here were optimists. They were focused on the opportunity to change the world with all this amazing new technology and the call to action that you need to come here to help change the world. It's not going to happen by itself. And I was excited, inspired by that opportunity, even though my personal narrative was still very much focused on fear and threat. This was kind of a alternative view that started to enter my life. By the way, when people ask me about why Silicon Valley has been so successful over so many decades, most people talk about well, it's the universities, it's the venture capitalists, it's a whole bunch of things. I believe the success of Silicon Valley has been driven by the opportunity-based narrative that drew people from all over the world to Silicon Valley and continues to draw them because they're inspired by the opportunity. And so anyway, back into my life, I was in my early mid-50s and I went through a painful divorce. It was a crisis in my life and it was really a catalyst for me to step back and really reflect on, articulate my personal narrative because I'd never really done that. I was living it to this narrative, but had never articulated it. When I articulated, I said, my needs don't matter. Wait a minute. 
Why is that? With all this opportunity we have in Silicon Valley and the world, why am I so focused on dealing with threats and issues that people are facing versus opportunities? And so it really prompted me to evolve my personal narrative to say, no, I, I really want to encourage people to come together with me on the edge. I talk a lot about the edge as a place where opportunities emerge and overcome our fear because there's natural fear when you go out on an edge, but to accomplish really amazing things in terms of, in my particular case, the opportunity that really excites me is this notion of a different kind of platform mm -hmm. that can help all of us achieve much more of our potential. And that's really exciting to me. Yeah. So when you talk about these narratives, you talk about how it helps for them to be aligned in, in some way, right? So I feel like one of the things that we do in business school, you mentioned that emotions are contagious. I, I feel like perhaps the only thing we do in business school is we, <laughs> we put people in an environment where the opportunity narratives are more an opportunity narrative based emotions are more contagious than the threat ones. And so ultimately people come in thinking in terms of limits, thinking in terms of threats, and then ultimately they leave with more of a, of an opportunity based narrative that they've internalized. And so it's kind of like, if you want to start believing in that narrative, you relocate, maybe you change institutions or you change geographies and, and then your narrative can become more aligned with where you want it to become. Is that a fair description? I mean, surely it didn't take you a decade or so for the, for the alignment to happen. Presumably you, you must've had some kind of opportunity-based narrative. Otherwise you would not have been attracted to Silicon Valley, attracted to this edge. Yeah. Again, well, it gets to the second pillar that I talk about in the book, which is this very specific form of passion that I call mm -hmm. the passion of the explorer. I believe that we all have within us this kind of passion waiting to be discovered and waiting to be drawn out and cultivated. Most of us have been discouraged from even looking for the passion, much less pursuing it because your goal is to just earn a good living, high status jobs, advance your career. Forget passion. That's a hobby you could pursue after work if you want. And so the way I explain this in my own journey is that my passion was within me. And despite the threat-based narrative, my passion was pulling itself out. And that was what drew me to Silicon Valley, what drew me to some of the work that I did here. But it was not part of my narrative mm -hmm. until I had really, again, made the effort to step back and reflect on it and evolve it. And so, yeah, I think that the passion's waiting to be discovered. In the book, you actually have a passion matrix. And I thought, well, okay, I mean, <laughs> you can't spend time at BCG and not put everything into a, a matrix, but it's not enough to just say, okay, you got to have some passion. I mean, I think you articulate sort of a taxonomy of passion and you talk about how there's the passion of the fan and there's the passion of the player, but really it's this passion of the explorer that leads to the creation of great things. What is it about the explorer that makes him or her different from say the fan or the player? I came at this from research that I've done in many different environments. What I was doing was looking for environments where there is sustained extreme performance improvement. And if we're in a world of mounting pressure, what we want is sustained extreme performance improvement. What can I learn from those environments? And one of the things I found, despite the diversity of the environments I was looking at, everything from business environments to extreme sports, like big wave surfing, 
was the participants in those environments had a very specific form of passion called the passion of the explorer. But the elements of the passion of the explorer, one was they were all committed to having increasing impact in a specific area. It excited them to have more and more impact. They were driven to have more and more impact. And the result too, was they were excited when they were confronted with unexpected challenges, because now this was an opportunity to learn more and have even more impact. This is wonderful. And then the final element of the passionate explorer is when confronted with those unexpected challenges, their immediate instinct and reaction is who else can I connect with who can help me get to a better answer faster in addressing this challenge? Because my goal is to accelerate my impact, not just have more impact. So the combination of those three elements, I think creates excitement about learning through action and impact. And I think that's what we all need in a world of mounting pressure. It, it changes that stress and fear into excitement. That's really motivating us to move forward. If I think about it from sort of an evolutionary metaphor, those are the folks that are really going to thrive in, in a world of constant change. And the people who are kind of living in a state of fear that they'll maybe tread water in, in a world of constant change. But is this response to change, this feeling of fear, is this something which is just baked into who we are as, as organisms, or is there much more malleability here? You kind of argue that when you look at kids, they're almost all passionate <laughs> explorers, and then it's kind of stripped away. We've basically, through our educational process, baked this fear response into us as individuals. You left a lot of the academic references out of the book. You said it, the book would be too long. I'm one of those people who's like, wait, I wish the book were twice <laughs> as long. Like, we're, I want to I keep following up on all these concepts. But what do we need to do differently in education in order to create more passionate explorers? I think, first of all, and I'm going to generalize, again, I've actually studied the U.S. public education system, the history of it. And our U.S. public education system was explicitly designed to take children and prepare them for the factory so that they could follow instructions without fault. And I think they did an enormously successful job of that. They took students and said, just listen to the teacher, memorize what the teacher has to say and prove that you've memorized it with exams. And that prepared them for going into a scalable efficiency factory or institution where mm -hmm. the success is following instructions without fault. And I actually believe in most institutions today, passion is deeply suspect. By the way, I'll, I'll give you another bit of research that I did when I came across this passion of the explorer, I did a survey of the entire U S workforce. And I said, how many workers today have this kind of passion about the work they're doing? The result was at best 14% of U S workers have this kind of passion about their work. And I'm actually surprised it's as many as 14% because I believe in most of our institutions, passion again is deeply suspect. Passionate people ask too many questions. They take too much risk. They deviate from the script. You don't want passionate people. You want people who will follow the orders reliably and efficiently without mistake. <laughs> without failure. And so I think that that's the challenge we face again, in terms of really understanding the role of our environments and our institutions and whether they're actually encouraging us on the journey beyond fear to find the passion and to pursue it 
or are they trying to discourage it and keep us in fear? And again, I'll just say many institutions today recognize the need for change. And the metaphor that's the most common one that I've encountered is the burning platform metaphor. If we don't change, the platform is going to collapse and we're all going to die. So we got to change. Guess what that does? It feeds the fear. We're going to die. Oh my God. No, I got to hold on to what I have and protect what has led to success so far. Can't take any risk. Sorry. I'm living in Silicon Valley. It's sometimes hard to understand true base rates in Silicon Valley. You think that everybody eats organic food. <laughs> like <laughs> It's really only like 1% of the American population. Right. And so at least a lot of the people that I know at companies, they tend to steer away from narratives like that. And they do try to promote some kind of purpose, some kind of opportunity-based narrative. But you argue that a lot of these are kind of pseudo narratives or the companies their stated missions are, are not really designed to in, inspire people. They're not really designed to leverage this power of pull that you talk about in an earlier book. What's the difference between a, a legit narrative and a pseudo narrative, right? So when companies are trying to tap into intrinsic motivation, they talk a good game, but when it comes down to the incentives, when it comes down to the culture, it doesn't really reinforce that idea. Another complicated issue. I think that first of all, I need to clarify when I talk about corporate narratives, I'm not talking about mission or purpose mm -hmm. because that's about the company. Yeah. To me, a corporate narrative is an opportunity that's really exciting and inspiring for the customers of the company. What is the big opportunity that they're really having an ability to achieve and what's the action they need to take? What's the call to action for them? And it's not by our products, it's action that will help them to achieve this opportunity. And the example that I give, there are very few companies that I know of that have this kind of corporate narrative, but Apple computer back in the 1990s had a corporate narrative, which was condensed into the slogan of think different, but unpack the slogan. It was for decades. We had digital technology that took away our names, gave us numbers, put us in cubicles. Now, for the first time, there's a generation of technology that can allow us to express our unique potential and individuality, but it's not going to happen automatically. You need to think different. Will you think different? And it was such an inspiring call to action to customers that I think it's the reason why for many people, Apple became the equivalent of a religion. And yes, once that narrative was framed, you can then talk about a purpose and mission for the company which is to help people think different, but it's all about starting with the customer and what's the opportunity for them and what's the actions they're going to need to take. That's I think missing. Yeah. I was, I was a little surprised when I saw you made that distinction between the customer facing story and or narrative and the internal, I thought given that you were emphasizing the importance of platforms and kind of the permeability of firm boundaries and how it becomes more and more difficult to figure out, right, what the different roles are within these ecosystems that one would have to have a consistent narrative that was delivered to all the different constituents within this ecosystem. Is this new understanding of how firms operate and how ecosystems have evolved, doesn't it make it more difficult to figure out who the customer is? I mean, I, all the people I talk to 
in Silicon Valley now talk about the employee as the customer, and they talk about the supplier as the customer, and they talk about the third-party developer as the customer. And, and so it's not like you can send different messages to everybody, right? And again, it gets complicated. There are more and more participants and diverse roles that are being played. At the end of the day, I believe in business, the customer is the business. If we don't know who the customer is and what their needs and opportunities are, we're in deep trouble. And once we've identified that, we can mobilize and inspire a broad range. I mean, one of the things that I think led to Apple's early success was the inspiration to a larger and larger ecosystem of application developers and device manufacturers because they were inspired too. the opportunity for the customer to think different. Let's develop an application that can help them to think different. Let's join forces here. And so it helped to catalyze a very robust ecosystem for Apple. So it wasn't just, again, I'm not just saying it's only about the customer, but you have to start with the customer and then work your way back to say, what's the opportunity for all of us to address that customer opportunity? Right. So for a university and we're trying to do something similar, we kind of have to think of, I guess, the student facing side of things first and then work backwards to the kind of faculty and, and staff and other participants in the, in the system. So I want to talk about platforms, of course, but before we do so, I want you to tell me a bit about this idea of, of the edge, right? So you created an entity at Deloitte and it was called the center for the edge. What exactly is, is an edge? I remember talking to another interviewee, we were talking about tidal pools and, you know, other metaphors for where all the action is. What exactly is an edge? And if we think about an organization like a firm, firms have edges. Do we need to think about having different kinds of people in the edges of the organization and then within the core have a different sort of people? Or is everything ultimately going to be edge in today's world? Yeah. Again, a lot of questions there. The center for the edge, the inspiration for it, first of all, I love paradox. And how can you be a center for the edge or either the edge or you're the center? And <laughs> Not the center of the edge, but the center for the edge. For the edge. Yeah. And our charter that I developed was to identify emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda, but are not. So by definition, if executives were coming to us, asking us to do research on something, it was too late. We wanted to be focused on opportunities they should be asking about but we're not. And our belief was those opportunities emerge first on some kind of edge, an area that's rapidly changing. So it could be geographic edges, developing economies versus the developed economies, what's going on in the developing economies. It could have been demographic edges like younger generations coming into the workforce or a consumer base. What are the opportunities that are being created by them? Or technology edges, the next wave of technology. And then it gets complicated. Edges too are the intersection across disciplines. I'm sure you'll be pleased with this, but one of the things I do on the side is I'm on the board of trustees of a group called the Santa Fe Institute. And one of the things that really drove them was the realization that we were academically siloed and we had physicists, chemists, sociologists, economists, all focused on complex adaptive systems, but they had no idea that anybody else was interested in mm -hmm. this topic because they were so siloed. And the goal of the Santa Fe Institute was to bring these people together and learn across edges. 
so that they could get much more insight. And so I do believe that the edges become the area of fastest learning. Again, edges are scary because they're unfamiliar territory. But if you're really passionate and excited about learning, you're drawn to those edges. You need to be on those edges because that's where the learning is, is fastest and most effective. So let's talk about platforms because I've spoken to a lot of people about platforms, but the kind of platforms that we would typically talk about are things like what you call transactional platforms or social platforms, but you're mostly interested in these learning platforms. And in your book, I think it was in 2005 that this book came out, or, or you were talking about this idea of continuous learning. You were talking about a move from an emphasis on efficiency to an emphasis on peer learning. And so what exactly is, is a learning platform? I mean, are we, are we talking about, I know your answer, but are we talking about like a Coursera <laughs> here? What, what are we talking about when we say peer learning? Now that's what I need to clarify up front, because when I talk about learning platforms, everybody immediately turns to Coursera or Udemy. It's all these platforms where you can sign up for courses and classes. No, to me, that's sharing existing knowledge. That's learning in the form of sharing existing knowledge, not to be dismissed. There's value there. But to me, in a rapidly changing world, the most powerful and necessary form of learning is learning in the form of creating new knowledge, not just sharing existing knowledge. And the way we do that is through action, not just sitting and reflecting, but acting and seeing what the results are and evolving and iterating on the approaches that we're taking. And we do it much better together. One of the key themes in my book on this journey beyond fear is not to try to do this alone. As quickly as possible, try to come together into small groups. And again, this is based on a lot of research I've done in many different environments, but I found that people learn faster, no matter how talented or skilled they are, they learn faster if they're part of a small group. Mm -hmm. I mean, between three to 15 people at most, so they can develop deep trust-based relationships with each other and in part support each other in those small groups, but in part challenge each other to get to better and better impact. And so to me, the core, first of all, the primary design goal of a learning platform in the way I think about it is to help all participants to learn faster through action together. And then the core unit of the platform is providing shared workspaces for these small groups where they can come together and share what they're doing and be in contact more regularly than just when they meet and then connect those small groups into broader networks so they can scale their learning and impact and learn faster together. So again, that to me is something that's really missing, but a uh, huge opportunity to be achieved. Isn't that sort of what a good research university does or, or maybe even Xerox Park or Bell Labs or, I mean, aren't there examples of what could be described as learning platforms? What's wrong with the existing structures that we have in place for learning and the creation of new knowledge? Yeah, I think certainly there are examples in, as you said, research labs and innovation centers, but those are within a single institution, Bell Labs or Xerox Park. Within that, there was learning. I would say in many cases, they weren't as focused on these small groups as opposed to individual researchers and maybe some teams, but not groups in the way I'm talking about them. But the key to me about scalable learning is extending the platform well beyond any individual institution. So that you're connecting with people around the world 
who share that passion and desire to, to learn faster and creating and being a catalyst for small groups to come together around the world and then connect with each other. That's I think still missing. Right. So would there be some algorithmic way to match people who had similar learning challenges or were in the process of creating similar types of knowledge? Yeah. I, I mean, again, it gets complicated. In my view, part of the learning platform is helping people, first of all, to just evolve their personal narratives and discover their passion and they can help each other do that. But once they've discovered their passion and have real excitement about some kind of big opportunity in the future, now how do we bring people together who share that excitement? So mm -hmm. as to your point earlier, excitement, emotion is contagious. If you're in a small group where everyone is just super excited about this opportunity, that feeds on itself. And I think that's, again, there are algorithms and techniques that can be designed to help find those people and connect them, bring them together and coach them in terms of how to form these groups and pursue their actions. I think some of this insight comes from your, your days when you were involved in activist movements in your youth, right? You referenced that, you referenced some work on evangelical churches. You say that, you know, movement narratives need to be supported by this kind of cellular organization, right? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. We are living in a world where we've got movements all around us. We're swimming in a sea of movements, right? But yeah. the movements are often vague and ineffectual. So what do you need organizationally? Well, this stems again, I've done a lot of research for decades on movements throughout history and what characterizes the most successful movements. And I've come to believe that despite different parts of the world and different periods of history, the most successful movements have had two elements in them. One is an opportunity-based narrative. They framed a really inspiring opportunity that motivated people to come together. And then a cellular structure. They organized their core unit of organization was a small group, three to 15 people, where they developed deep trust-based relationships with each other and then connected through broader networks to address that inspiring opportunity. But I think that, again, I'm going to generalize, but one of the things that I see in movements today is they're largely driven by threat-based narratives. The enemy's coming to get us. We're all going to die. We need to mobilize now and resist. It's all about the threat. Versus again, if we all came together, what amazing opportunity could we achieve? And then the cellular form of organization, much of the movements today are either on social media where they just exchange tweets or Facebook posts, or they go out in the streets for large demonstrations, but there's no cohesive small group that's coming together on a regular basis to support and challenge each other to have more impact. I think that's missing as well. So you spent a lot of time at university. You got a lot of degrees. You've also <laughs> spent some time with, well, Singularity, University, non-university, and Santa Fe <laughs> Institute. What can universities do to be more effective? I have my thoughts on this, and I think the notion of a place where you go for a couple of years and then walk away and don't really interact with after you, maybe you go to an alumni event or two, I find that model to be one that's in serious need of reform. But how could you reimagine institutions of learning which promoted continuous learning. It seems like what you're describing isn't really scalable, right? This idea of let's have these small groups. We would need some system way of kind of connecting them and supporting them. What would a scalable 
institution of continuous learning look like? Yeah, well, I, I believe the learning platforms I'm talking about are infinitely scalable. Yeah. I mean, yes, the core unit is a small group, but then it's the networks that connect all those small groups so they can exchange ideas and learn from each other, watching each other and seeing the results. So I think that there's a huge opportunity to scale this. So would it be similar? Would you then belong to one network or another kind of the way in which we currently belong to one alumni network or another? Would that be the mechanism? Potentially. I mean, again, a longer conversation, but I talk about driving change in existing institutions from the edge rather than in the core. And to me, to be clear, when I talk about edges, I'm talking about parts of an organization that have the potential to actually become the new core of the institution. They're not just going to be an edge all the time. They will scale to the point where they become the new core. And in educational institutions, I believe this whole focus on lifelong learning creates an interesting edge because to your point, once you're an alumnus, alumni, you're basically off and yeah, we'll approach you for some funding and maybe a reunion every once in a while, but no. It's the notion of we are partners throughout our lives and we're going to learn together how to have more and more impact in a rapidly changing world. And that over time, I think, could become the new core of all our educational institutions. because there are going to be a lot more people who graduated than people who were in the classes today, in the core curriculum today. And so I believe focusing on that unmet need can drive a significant change. And again, it's the unmet need of learning in the form of creating new knowledge, not just lectures and teaching people things that have already mm. been discovered. It's a very different form of learning. Well, I'm super excited about this idea of learning platform and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where you take it. I think people, if they want to follow you on, on your journey, join you in your journey in this new edge of yours, which perhaps will be the center at some point. I think they can follow you on your website. But in the meantime, check out this book, The Journey Beyond Fear, Leverage the Three Pillars of Positivity to Build Your Success. And it builds on a wealth of knowledge and a lifetime of experience and a whole bunch of other books that, that I also highly recommend. And they have not grown old. It's amazing when I was reviewing these books, how precocious they were. I couldn't believe that some of the things you were writing in, in 2009 and how they seem so contemporary. So it's been great chatting with you, John. Thank you. I appreciate the conversation for sure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.